Welcome back to another episode of the Bodybuilding Down Under podcast. I am DC, one of your four co-hosts with Jack, Lawrence, and DY. Now, today's episode is a special one because we have featuring on our first guest on the BDU podcast. Uh, now, I don't know about you guys, but uh, can already tell that the level of muscularity in this Zoom call has at least at least doubled. Uh, and that's because we have the infamous BK, Brandon Kemter, in our presence. Now, I'm going to throw the mic around and see how everyone's going. Let's start with you, big man. How's uh, Bali life treating you? Well, so far, so great. I uh, had to escape the cold of Southeast Queensland, of which compared to the poor souls of Victoria is nothing, but had to uh, yeah get some warmth going. And it's been fantastic over here. Been over here for a couple of weeks, got a little bit more to go. Just been immersing myself in the uh, the couple of bodybuilding gyms here, focusing on work without the external noise of life in general. It's been good. It's always you exciting guys? to go overseas or go just to a different location. And even if it's a little bit more like a work trip, just that clarity that you get in terms of freeing the mind. And I also get really excited about training at, at different gyms as well, even if it's like for a couple of weeks. Yeah, it's been fantastic. And obviously this trip is... It's not a super long trip. It's a three-week trip, but it's still, you know, three weeks is long enough to develop a, a, a short mesocycle. So I've been able to jump around a couple of gyms in week number one, find a place that is essentially my home, and then build a program around that. And it's been absolutely fantastic. Just training in the heat it reminds me of when I first really started bodybuilding, training at Whole Drone and whatnot, which is... Um, was a big warehouse gym with no air condition. This place is the same. There's just these huge fans that just, it's like a big three turbines, you know, in three corners of the gym that just blast you with hot air. It's, it's, it's been fantastic. Yeah, good. And what about you boys? What's, uh, what's been happening, Jack? Tell us about your training. Yeah, so this is my first week back uh, from a deload and I've had two, two de-volume sessions to, to start my, training block. So the main reason I do devolume to start is just to help mitigate DOMS upon returning, because if I come back to my usual volume and intensity straight away, it's a, it's a bit of a shit show in terms of how sore I get, especially uh, the lower body. And uh, while that's a little bit mentally tough, because I'm ready to go firing on all cylinders, like I know it's the right thing to do. So that's been going well. I've cycled in a couple new movements as well. So giving the, the barbell incline press a run for its money again. Uh, it's been a while since I've done a barbell movement and looking forward to progressing that. I'm already, like it's my first time on it and I'm already the strongest I've been on it. So that bodes well for my my um, improvements so far this, this off season and where the runway I have for this movement, considering like I've got some skill acquisition to go, especially for me to get more confident with it. And also like a probably a solid like five to seven kilos of body weight to gain in this push-up. So yeah, looking forward to, to milking it out. Is this a complete swap of the Hannah Strength Incline that you were doing? Yeah, I think so. Uh, I was, uh, I've reached my peak with that one and I'll definitely revisit it because I'm, I want to tick off the elusive four plates, but not for a while. And how long were you running the Incline Hannah Strength for before you decided to change it? That was probably from June of 2021 to July of 2022. So a solid, yeah, 13 months. That's really like an advocate for not really changing your uh, your exercise selection too much. If you have mm -hmm. that goal of, 
you know, advancing and progressing within, within a single movement like that. I think a lot of people think that programs need to change, you know, from, from program to program in terms of every, every single exercise, but I think really it's about picking one and then maybe mm. sort of accessories. If you could even say there's an accessory movement in bodybuilding uh, somewhat, you know, changed from program to program. What about you, Lawrence? What's been happening, my man? Mate, same old, same old, probably very similar to the other four boys on this chat. We eat, we train, we sleep and get on with it. But no, it's good. Training's been very, very good of late. I had a little bit of a okay leg session on Sunday. It just wasn't quite 100% um, just because I had about four hours in the car that day. Gemma and I drove out to Warwick. So she's heading out there for a placement for nine weeks and she wanted to get another little practice drive in. So I went out with her. So as you can imagine, a little bit stiffer on the knees and the low back in the gym that day, but it was still a good session, still progressed everything, but you know, it's just not quite that same spark in the gym when you've already had quite a big start to the day. But as of yesterday, we ticked off a nice little goal, which was to get 180 or four plates per side on the stiff legged deadlift. So that felt really good, managed seven reps, which was really nice. And then a little PB on the OHP as well. So it's just great. I'm in a really good little purple patch of training, which I'm hoping will take me into tomorrow's session nicely. I'm training with the big Dadford Smith over at his home court. So it's going to be interesting. I'm the away team, but he's coming off the deload. So I'm a little bit more neurally prepared, I guess you could say. So hopefully that means we come out at about even, which will be good. So what are you guys training tomorrow? Come on, mate. There's only one option. Yeah, your legs, but like what? what rear what, delts. Rear delts, yeah, right. No, well, I think it's a bit of everything. Hey, like our programs for this block happen to be very similar, like scarily similar. It's almost as if, you know, Jack's been trying to copy me. No, I'm joking. But um, I'm looking forward to that. It'll be really good. It's actually been a hot minute since Jack and I have trained together. I think it was maybe when I was last in prep, mate, that leg mm. day at Maricobat. Yeah, what, what was that in late 2020 now? Or mid mid 2020? Yeah, it would have been mid to late because I think I was mm. maybe seven or eight weeks out at that point. So yeah, yeah it's been a good while, which uh, I'm looking forward to. Gonna give a good run around on the hack, which will be nice. Yeah, for sure. If you don't get slightly nervous about a session with the boys, are you actually <laughs> training hard enough? <laughs> what about you, DY? Tell us about your week. It's like when me and Lawrence trained, I rocked up to the wrong gym. I'm like, where the hell are you? He's like, yo, you're at the wrong club line. I'm like, oh God, I felt so bad. He's in prep and I'm like fully stitched him up and sitting at the wrong club line. I was like, I'll be over there in 10 minutes. It's like flying down like these 60 streets. Uh, yeah, but everything's been good. Like what Lawrence said, you pretty much eat, sleep, train, no, nothing too crazy. Um, I'm coming on the back end of my current program right now, going into week five. I'll uh, probably deload the week six. Everything's been going all right, but I've just had like a little niggle here and there. So I want to play it a little bit conservative. And then I'm probably going to actually switch up my whole program rotation. Like like I said, and anyone probably listening knows that I've been running like a higher frequency on my upper body, more like three times chest, three times back. I'm probably going to switch to what we discussed when we were talking about our programs about three weeks ago. I might start running like a pull push legs upper lower. I've always run that one and I've really liked it. And I think now is probably the time where I swap back after finishing up i guess part two of the higher frequency program but other than that it would just be like a deload um if i'm really feeling amazing by the end of the week i might take another week but i highly doubt it. i think that this program will probably be run for six weeks only unfortunately 
Mm. And what would be sort of the indication for you to run a deload? Like what would you be feeling within your body that would say, hey, I need to, I need to recover? Well, right now I've got like a little niggle in my chest. Like it's, it feels okay, but like it's one of those ones that you probably don't want to push for a whole nother week of training, which would be like roughly like four or five chest sessions. So I think it might be a little bit better just to play it safe take the deload and then go from there. And I think bringing back the frequency from training it three times a week to maybe bringing it back to two could also help with the recovery a little bit on that, on that end as well. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Um, my end, man, just the same as you boys. Hey, I wish, I wish I had something overly exciting to report upon in terms of the training front. One thing that I am overly excited for is that there's a powerhouse gym opening up down the road uh, at Stafford. And I've just been looking at their Instagram uh, page and they have got some really cool Watson, Watson pieces. And I'd be stoked to hear about you boys and whether you've actually used much Watson equipment before. Because personally, I haven't actually used any of their stuff uh, or minimal amounts of their stuff. What about you, B? Have you ever used any, any sort of Watson, Watson gear? Yeah, don't let me, uh, don't, don't let me uh, tear, tear down your joy. For Watson is a very prestige equipment brand. But to be totally honest, I'm not an absolute fan of it. Um, yeah, no, I, I think it's it's equipment that's designed by an engineer. Uh, it's really in that it's really well designed from the perspective of being robust, but some of the angles and lack of adjustability and some of their older equipment sort of frustrated me a little bit. I know the dumbbells, they uh, used a really dense composite of metal, which made the dumbbells quite small. And they used to have those fat grips with the rollers, which everyone thought was absolutely the bee's knees. Whereas I jumped on it and was like, well, I'm 20% less strong on this dumbbell press now. Maybe with some acclimation, I'll find my groove, but I wasn't overly fond of that. With that said, uh, everyone is, you know, constantly developing their product lines. So I can only make the assumption they've got better since, you know, 10 years ago back then. Uh, but it is really expensive stuff and i know that powerhouse have invested heavily in their uh, their equipment i mean the new i mean powerhouse in underwood oh one of my favorite gym is for the diversity of equipment atlantis they have there they got a bunch of cybex stuff so i have an expectation that this new place is going to be equally awesome mm, yeah for sure like, like i said i've never used watson watson gear before but i'm excited about it just to, just to give it a crack but i think as a you know, as, as we all are bodybuilders, we sort of have our own bias in regards to certain machines that we either love or we, or we hate. <laughs> um, One thing to put uh, out to you guys, sorry, yeah. to cut you. have you guys had much experience in the way of the gym 80 equipment? I'm yet to really put myself through some good training on it. I've only used one piece of equipment, which was uh, a seated chest fly, which I thought was um, completely unnecessary. And, um, <laughs> to be fair, <laughs> But I have seen some of their other equipment and I look at it and I'm like, oh, it looks really great. Have you guys, I think it's World Gym Stafford has a whole lot of their kit. Yeah, Stafford and also Brendale, which is where I'm training at mostly, has a lot of um, gym 80. Even the Golds at, at, at Kippering has a lot of gym 80 stuff. Look, I think it's quite similar to, to most other pieces in terms of brands. Like there's certain things that 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 feel great and then there's certain things that don't in terms of its um, force length curve, like certain um pull down variations like a high row variation on one of the gym 80 pieces where uh there's a high amount of tension at the top but there's minimal tension at the bottom it just feels quite quite bizarre in terms of the, the fluidity of the row um so yeah just just certain things like that but um mate you'll have to come to brendale have a session with jack and i and we'll um we'll tee it up oh that would be a day wouldn't it that's gonna have to happen when i'm back in oz I've used, I've used the um, chest supported because I took a trip to Brendale. I used the chest supported row there, plate loaded. That was very nice. 
And I'm looking forward to running the, the pendulum because I think like DC and I have discussed like the, the mechanics of the, the pendulum and how for some people it, it, it might not allow for enough range of motion. But I think for me, it might just scrape through. So uh, I'll be putting, running that for my um, primary squat pattern, I reckon. So is it the Watson pendulum there, Brendel? No, it's the, uh, it's the gym 80. It's the gym 80. Oh, gym 80. Okay, yeah. yeah, that's in terms of Watson pieces, they have the Watson pendulum, I believe at Powerhouse Southside, which is pretty good. I get on pretty well with that. And I think it's the same one at Stafford. And then I've mm. used the Watson, you know, like the dumbbells that you mentioned. And then the hack, of course, which is not bad. It's a decent hack. It's probably not going to win any awards, but it's solid. And then when I was last at Powerhouse Southside training, like an upper session, I used like a plate loaded incline chest Leave fly. Squat. Oh, no. <laughs> now, oh, that was there though. Yeah, I had a little feel on it. Cool. That felt pretty interesting. That incline plate loaded fly though, unusable. It's terrible. Like, sure. Yeah. Like, it felt just super awkward. The re rack is like you have to dislocate your shoulder just to put the weight down. And oh, it's no. just, I don't know, not a very well thought through piece, in my opinion. And it just, I don't know, like free weight flies, like just given where the tension is on the muscle and like when you're yeah. getting into that, you know, shortened range position of the pec, you've basically got no more tension on the pec. I just find they feel super awkward. Like for me, it's cable flies or nothing, to be honest. Well, you know, the that fly machine you mentioned, they're a bit hit and miss, some of those plate loaded fly machines. When I was in New York, I trained at Bev's gym and I used the plate loaded fly machine there and i thought it was the bee's knees so much to the point of which i made the assumption that all of those fly machines are equally awesome and then ordered one for myself for the home gym and i was like yeah this is okay but totally unnecessary when you've got a good cable set up so they're really hit and miss sometimes you've got that they they literally feel like a dumbbell fly where you've got all this tension at the length and position and absolutely nothing in the shortened range but if they're engineered well, like the particular one at Bev's gym, you have a pretty constant force curve right to full shortening. It feels amazing. Mm. Right. Do you remember that brand by any chance? I have no idea. <laughs> I'm sure you've got him in the, in the inbox, mate. Just shoot Mr. Francis a message. I'm sure he can get back to you. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> but <laughs> that gym, though, was one of my favorite gyms uh, ever to train out of. There was just yeah. so much bodybuilding memorability. That's a bucket list for sure. Yeah, I mean, to, and here's the thing, right? I stumbled upon that gym completely by accident. Now, everyone knows this gym and I had no idea. It was 2019. I'd just driven to New York from, actually, Daniel, uh, D.Y., you were there. Yeah. I'd driven to New York and I was on the way back to the accommodation at wherever it was, East Slip or something. And I was just like, gyms in my area. And it just directed me into this random industrial estate to the back end of Bev's gym. And it was like this dark alleyway and this random door that opened up into bloody El Dorado. And I was like, this is amazing. <laughs> yeah. I was going to ask what you actually thought about that gym. Cause I knew you would have trained there cause we trained there as well. And it just has so many pieces of equipment. And then they got like, you got one room and then you got like a whole nother room down the back, which is just like complete leg day stuff. And it's like, just yeah. like, extremely good leg good leg equipment too it's a real shame that i didn't have to train legs that day i was doing like an upper body workout but i was just in there i was like wow it's got everything and three times of it so you want to do a leg extension oh you can use this leg extension that has sprockets and chains that's literally been built in i don't know the 70s yeah that's cool uh there's also three different other types of leg extensions both uh you know pin loaded to free weight and it's just 
And on top of that, the bodybuilding memorabilia around you, you've got some of the absolute greats uh, on the walls, you know, with these that are all autographed and whatnot. And you just cannot, you just can't not train like an absolute weapon there. The environment demands it and that just rocks my world. It's crazy though, because like you rock up in there and you know it's a bodybuilding gym when you get in there because you just hear grunting, just weight slamming. Like I remember just seeing like Sadiq in there and all that, like uh, George as well, the, the bull, he was there. And like, it's just crazy because you're all in there and there's like five IFBB pros all training at yeah. the same time, just slamming weight, not giving a crap. And it's just crazy. Like you go to a world gym or something like that over here and it's just kind of like dead quiet. But then you get there and then it's just like, well, this guy isn't groaning when he's doing his sets and it's just crazy. Yeah. Us little natties rolling in there. Yeah. There's nothing better than hearing the, the sound of metal plates clanging on a, on a barbell when someone's there lifting 300 kilos next year. Yeah, it was absolutely crazy. How many times have you guys watched Pumping Iron and that's just like the sound that you hear in there, the, the old school way, it's just clanging when you're doing squats or bench or whatever. That to me is like music to my ears. <laughs> Well, now you get rubber ones, all right? You get rubber ones with no clang at all. So that's what you get at a commercial gym now. Right. But they'll make the plates twice as big so it looks double as impressive. You're like, well, this guy benching 100? Like, no, nah, it's only 60. It's great for Instagram. Uh, yeah. But <laughs> well, boys, we should uh, get into the crux of the topics that we have planned for today. And going back to some of the questions, that were asked through our weekly poll. Thank you guys and girls for you know, uploading some questions. We, uh, we definitely love to get questions from you guys because it helps to direct the show towards topics that you want to listen about. And one of the questions that we did have today was about uh, body fat percentage and when would you essentially start a mini cut? So is there a certain body fat percentage where it's like, hey, we're not pushing above this anymore. Let's, let's cut here. Uh, what do you guys think? Let's... Um, Let's push the question over to B and uh, get you to answer this, man. All right. Straight up. All righty. Uh, look, I think that, that when it comes to needing to run a mini cut, well, better, better this. Let's, let's frame it like this. I think there's a lot of interpersonal variability pertaining to an individual's <clears throat> sort of ideal fat, fat mass being with, as I describe it, uh, in that in the off season, you want to have enough fat mass to perform well, cover well and maximize adaptation whilst not being too cuddly for lack of a better term, you know, where you have a you're at a disproportionate striking distance of stage lean. But where that fat mass bandwidth sits is, you know, the low end, we go below that, we start to feel dieted, go above that and we, we start to have a kind of performance drop and we start to look pretty average. Where that bandwidth sits is really dependent on the individual. I do, I have had the opportunity to work with some individuals of whom are, like greyhounds, they just seem to maintain a very lean physique, go them. And I have others that seem to perform better at slightly higher body fat percentages. But I mean, the metrics that I would use for assessing when someone needs to mini cut would be A, how they're looking, B, uh, how they're performing. There seems to be a certain point where you your appetite cues completely diminish through the floor and a point where, you know, you've got so much mass on you that, you know, you're waking up through the night with sleep apnea and that kind of thing. I would say, well, these are indicators that perhaps we're <clears throat> departing from your desired, uh, you know, body fat settling range and maybe we should run a mini cut there. Those are the metrics that I would use at least. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Do you guys have anything to add, Jack? Yeah, I think an interesting point as well is just the notion of body fat. Like often people 
look for a number to be like, okay, I've reached 18% body fat, it's time to mini cut. When, as BK alluded to, there's there's all these factors, which in my opinion are more important than a single number, number representative body fat. And it also goes on to like, there's a whole nother topic of conversation about the metrics of body fat use, like skin fold calipers versus DEXA versus BIA and how I think all of those systems are, consistent at least depending on other variables like if you have the same tester but their accurate their true accuracy is is probably not overwhelmingly great especially if you're testing like throughout a contest prep etc when you have different amounts of glycogen etc but yeah I'd, I'd completely agree with b how examine metrics related to your performance and of course like your proximity to stage as well if that's something that you're interested in as a competitor if you are going to compete I think, um, not, not to, to cut anyone off here, but one of the things which people uh, perhaps don't emphasize enough on is the fact that in the off season, you know, your goal is performance. So direct your body composition in accordance with maximizing performance, which in doing so should be a position that maximizes the adaptive yield from that performance and make your gains. So, you know, I've worked with a few people who tend to perform very well at, say, uh, like 20% over stage weight. That's where they need to, to perform. So if we have a long off season, we might spend the majority of the off season there and then pre-prep down to that nice, that, that appropriate striking distance uh, prior to the contest preparation. But the physique needs to be in a position where it's robust. And particularly for the advanced guys, it needs to be able to take the literal pounding of the big weights that you need to move in order to gain progress. So... Mm. Yeah, I think often people look at other athletes, like let's say a sprinter, they're incredibly lean all year round. They look very aesthetic, but compared to bodybuilders, we need to have those recovery capabilities. And I think it's Alberto Nunez who termed that something along the lines of like the body or the body comp where you perform your best isn't always where you look or feel the best either, which I think is, is something that I say to my clients often. Yeah. And you know, um, I often say that that one of the best, well, a lot of good bodybuilders, I'd say all good bodybuilders should be able to do this. They should be able to remove the emotional attachment to a specific body composition by appealing to logic in that each body composition has function and that your body composition is transient. If you want to change it, you can modulate that through your training and nutrition. And I think when you can embrace that as an athlete, you care a little bit less about how you're looking in real time. You're like, oh, I'm getting cuddly in the off season. I'm like, yeah, I can change that if I need to. But is this functional for capitalizing on the, whoops, uh, I was muted there. So is that body composition uh, functional for the current phase? If yes, continue. Absolutely, yeah. I think we've almost had a bit of like a mini cut movement where it's like, it's like a popular thing now to, to, to mini cut, you know, frequently within, within an off season, but like back when I started, you know, training, which in the grand scheme of things is not that long ago, you know, 10 years ago, I never heard of a mini cut. Mini, mini cut was never a thing, right? You didn't really hear about a lot of competitors that were frequently dieting in the off season uh, whilst they're trying to improve to the next stage showing. What do you boys think? Like it's, I think it's something that's become a little bit more prominent and perhaps I don't know if it's linked to, social media and having a little bit more of a, an emphasis towards sort of how we look day to day and, and how we present within the social media realm. 
and everybody wanting to look their best. Not that this is not something that was exclusive, let's say, 10 years ago. But I think the, the premise of, of, of and the utility of a mini cut is, is to somewhat degree overused a little bit than, than what it really should be. Yeah, I think it's it's quite mm. in vogue. Um, and I think like any any tool, it has its place, but if overused, then then that can be deleterious to the result. And it's interesting you mentioned social media because I do think that, not to get off topic here, but social media has definitely changed the landscape of bodybuilding massively. Um, the amount of people that tell me like, oh, you know, I need to stay in shape. It's good for my following. And I'm like, oh, okay. Never something I've thought about. I'm just too much of a bodybuilding purist. Like, ha. <laughs> I'm going to do whatever I need to do in the off season for the stage. I don't care what I look like. Uh, only matters on Winning stage. Winning titles is also good for the following as well. <laughs> well, well, it probably is, but I dare say that if I'm sure you guys would agree, right? If someone's doing that, that their goal is to get on stage simply for social media, I'm like, yeah, forget it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I personally couldn't rationalize the, uh, the unique challenges of contest preparation for anything, but specifically the stage. Right. Mm. So it's definitely a weird avenue to pursue if you're not invested in bodybuilding because it's a lot of suffering to to improve your following. There's better ways to improve your following. Go go pay for some bots or something. <laughs> Be controversial. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Especially when you get into BK conditioning for following. I don't know if it's going to be uh going to be worth it or if if anyone would ever last if they truly didn't have a passion for the sport. Let me well, ask you this, boys. As um, sorry, sorry to cut you. No, you're good. <laughs> Given you're all coaches, um, how many times you, have you been asked, like, been uh, had, had a client apply for coaching and say something on the lines of, I just want to get in shape and then I'm later on I'll decide if I want to get on stage. And my advice to that sort of individual is forget it. You're never going to get in shape. No one in their right mind is ever going to rationalize suffering to the levels of elite conditioning just to give it a go or for a photo shoot. It's not going to happen. Like... <laughs> Sorry, and probably, the one, and probably the ones that do get halfway through it and go, shit, this is not mm. what I want. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> for sure. That it's, I think it just comes from a, potentially a misunderstanding of what it actually truly means to, to get there, yeah. Yeah. I think you need to have those fundamentals in first. Like you need to love training. You like, need to love nutrition. And then it's like, all right, well, I absolutely love what I'm doing. Now, what's like the next step? Like, you know, maybe is it powerlifting if you love the performance side of it? Maybe it is the looks and then, you know, then you can assess it. You don't want to start with like someone that comes in just, I have no idea about training or nutrition, but I saw my best friend compete and now I want to do a bikini show. It's like, all right, well, this is going to be a very rough time and it isn't going to work out. I suppose like from a coaching perspective, that's part of what we do is to, I suppose, educate and guide people because most of the time it is going to come from a place of, of, a lack of education and understanding it's just it, yeah it's mm. simply what it comes from i think how it works out with someone like deciding to compete upon like seeing their friend competing like sometimes it can work out i've definitely heard of stories where someone's fallen in love with a, a passion towards like um competing and in, in, in contest prep via seeing their friend on stage and things like that but um generally those people have maybe a little bit of a background knowledge in regards to training and fitness you know in general rather than going completely from like a vanilla vanilla standpoint sorry jack i cut you off what were you going to say man well i often analogize it to like a social sport or a fun run where often people will be like oh this fun run happening in two weeks time let's just join it and, and have a good time with some mates like often i feel like people mean that when they inquire for bodybuilding when it's it's the stark opposite you're it's not quite the same you can't just rock up to your local football pitch and strip down into your trunks and, and start posing it's, it's not like that 
Oh, you can. <laughs> no, don't, don't, don't do that. <laughs> I mean, we we used to see this. I think pre two thousand and twelve, we would see things like that where someone would just roll into the show and they're wearing bonds. They're they're wearing they're rolling wearing bonds underwear without a tan or something, and you're like, ah, oh. someone just didn't know. It, it used to happen. These days, obviously, we have access to the internet, which is an infinite resource, and coaching is more accessible. So it very seldom happens these days, but it used to. BK, do you remember it was a season, and it was my first season, I believe, and you would have been there because that was the year that you coached Sean Fitzsimmons. Do you remember the Brisbane Classic Show? There was quite a large gentleman who had this massive mohawk? Uh, I think so. I, I think... I think so. Yes. Anyway, continue. Yeah. Cause I was going to say like, you know, obviously that stuff becomes a lot less apparent where someone has just entered a show for a piss take, but that's probably yeah. the most recent in memory where I've seen someone who, you know, I mean, explicitly just hasn't quite, you know, come to the show with the same sort of intentions as maybe the other people on stage. And, you know, this yeah. is something that like Tierra and Joey and I discussed on one of my shows, you know, like, who are you to turn that away necessarily in a sport like bodybuilding where you know it's not like we're getting grassroots funding from yeah. the government so you know another three or four hundred dollars is is never going to be turned away well that's true i mean as i think a well promoters can't afford to turn away competition if you want to compete you know they'll they'll allow you to get on stage um yeah but thankfully it doesn't doesn't happen much like i said just i assume that's got something to do with you know access to coaching access to resource resources online most people know that at minimum i got to come in with a tan of some sort um so i'm still yet to see since probably 2013 or 12 someone roll in you know a, a literal as as pasty as as i am right now and get under some stage lights so yeah I think I remember watching a an episode of like Hamish and Andy, and I think one <laughs> jumped on a, a bodybuilding stage and was like the only heavyweight on the day, so came away with the first, <laughs> a first medal. Oh god, how funny! I was going to say actually, as as white as Dy is looking right now, because once again, my boy's looking white under those see, it's, lights. It's because I got notes up on the left side when I hide it; it goes away. There you see, <laughs> look. Uh. Uh, about two percent yeah yeah yeah, yeah. instant tan just by removing the screen all right boys well let's move into the next uh topic here and this was another question that we did get on our poll and it, it was basically how to mitigate or how to reduce muscle loss within a, a fat loss phase or within a contest prep uh phase let's throw it over to you uh dy yeah so originally uh like this is a question that I wanted to touch on because I feel like BK gets clients in extreme condition. And I remember hearing on the uh, podcast a while ago, I think it was Alberto Nunez and they were like discussing how Dirk, cause Dirk was extremely lean at like, I think it was like 10 to 12 weeks out. I figured I uh, like, let's bring it up amongst the boys to see what, see what their points of views were with obviously getting clients in extreme condition and ways to mitigate like the, uh, let's say the muscle loss um, on the back end of prep, especially when you're extremely lean. So um, yeah, like I wanted to go over like, you know, maybe tactical high days, diet breaks um, and so on like that. Uh, I know I wanted to bring it up with BK as well. Um, maybe like changing training volumes and stuff like that. So what did you have on that BK? Yeah, look, I think that uh, the way I look at it is every phase has function. Every phase is a trade-off. It's like contest prep's all about, 
obviously just taking what you have in the off season, getting lean, but the associated trade-off is a potential for muscle loss. Uh, so our goal is to really exemplify the goal of the phase and minimize the associated trade-off or yeah, attenuate it. Uh, and it can be a pretty challenging piece. I think it's a strong balancing point between uh, doing what we can to retain muscle and, and, and lose fat mass because obviously they are two sort of goals that oppose one another. I'd say as a start, you want to make sure your starting position is appropriate. Therefore, you don't have to diet as aggressively. B, make sure you've got enough time in general, enough time that allows you to have periods at energy maintenance uh, should you require them. Uh, throughout that as well, if you don't have to diet as aggressively, you're probably less likely to crash out the individual from an endocrinological perspective. Because once you do that, you just don't have the ability to revive them in the contest prep, exit, come back another year. Um, and obviously, like you said, periods, <clears throat> nutrition periodization that encompasses uh, time and energy maintenance, whether that be a refeed and or diet break, are tools of which you can use to uh, manage both training-related fatigue and diet-related fatigue. In relation to reversing associated adaptation to the inner dieting condition, well, probably not. Pios's uh, research and a couple others in the area would indicate it's probably not so effective on that side of things. But it's a tool which you can use. I kind of, not to go on, but I look at contest prep like a game of, of push and pull. There's a time to push, dig, time to pull back. But you've got to, you can't just dig, 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 dig. You just crash and burn. So knowing when to push and when to pull, I suppose that's part of the art of coaching. What do, you, what do you guys have to add? Yeah, sorry. Uh, and now that <laughs> I guess I'll answer what DC said, like playing around with like some uh, some of the variables, like what BK is kind of hinting at here, like, you know, with training and nutrition, like, you know, being able to reduce maybe some of the training volume, especially on the back end or swapping some of the training volume to stuff like, you know, like obviously you're not going to be hitting like five by five squats because chances are you're probably going to lose some strength on the back end of those. So maybe swapping them to other lifts that might be easier to hold the performance could be beneficial alongside pairing that with like high days, diet breaks and so on like that. But what also BK said, you know, not getting them too lean too early and if you do maybe having ways to slow that down if it may be a diet break, high days and so on like that. See, it's interesting you mentioned too lean too early. I definitely think that, uh, you know, you, you definitely can be too lean too early. And there comes a point where despite your best efforts to give back to the system, right, with periods of energy maintenance, you're just so lean that you're, you're somewhat crashed out from an endocrinological perspective. And when you do that, you only have a window of time before you start to go backwards. So you want to be lean enough to uh, be able to slow your rate of loss down, have the flexibility to incorporate those diet breaks, et cetera, throughout your timeline. But if you are truly ready at 10 weeks out, it's pretty tough to preserve it. It's pretty tough. Yeah, I'd say it would be tough even if even if you are strategically building your calories up um, you know, over time or, or giving back to the system, so to speak, because, because of this, just the del deleterious effects associated with being just only Maybe. having essential levels of body fat, right? Just... Yeah, like there's 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 absolutely detriment to that in in the long run. It's kind of like you've said quite a few times, like stone over uh, water over stone, right? So like at the initial aspects of a contest prep, that that water doesn't really have much of a degrading effect. But 25, you know, 30 weeks into it, and you're holding that that level of leanness for consecutive weeks, ends or months, if you're trying to, then then that's obviously where it has more of a corrosive effect. And you guys can relate, right? You know, at the end of a contest prep 
like daily tasks are hard. Like you don't sit on the couch, like you sit in the couch. You know, you're sitting there like, oh, I kind of need to go to the bathroom. Nah, I can hold it for five minutes. Like it's life is just. Got to change my pants anyway. <laughs> that's the real anaconda's pressed up but it's just life is harder and i think one of the things that people don't sort of uh consider as well is just like like dan was saying the abrasive endeavor that is contest preparation on your psychology it wears at you and it just takes so much more effort to do basic tasks it takes so much more effort to train at that level of intensity like i'm driving to the gym with you know, metal playing at full blast, slap myself in the face, bloody rub and pre-workout into my nostrils or something, just trying to like get myself in the zone, smash the ass out of that session, go. But that sort of thing, it's just like, how sustainable is that? I mean, it's not, it just needs to be sustainable for long enough. But if, and if, you, if you have to do that for like 20 weeks straight, because you're so lean so early, I'm like, man, that's tough. So as you wear, Jack. I wasn't, I was just agreeing with you totally. And that's one thing that if those side effects weren't present in comp prep towards the end, like I would be competing a lot more regularly than I do because I would, it would be a much more like, enjoyable isn't the right word, but just a much less harsh pro process. And it's interesting what you said about like egging yourself up for the gym, because like sometimes that can almost be like a double-edged sword because like you'll, you'll invest so much energy in that process that like, I don't know if you're the same, but like I'd I'd find even like listening to metal in my top sets, like that would even take away from my from my focus because of of how much energy is invested to even listen to that. I'm not. I guess everyone's <laughs> yeah. a little bit different, but everyone operates yeah, differently. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. I mm. I can definitely relate to that. I think I actually started putting on more relaxing music because it seemed to take take away less less energy from me. In theory, amping up the sets, I mean, that's recovery costly. You want to be, in theory, have, uh, you want your arousal high enough to perform, but not too high, because anything above that is potentially deleterious to both recovery and maybe even performance if it's a technically challenging lift. But I don't know about you guys. I definitely find that I need to train. I'm a high arousal trainer. I am the dude that will pinch my eyelids until they bleed before I get in the legs, leg press because I need to go there. I need to be able, I'm, I'm, I promise you, I'm a peaceful and, and kind gentleman, but I need to be able to be in a mood where I could metaphorically stab someone repetitively and like feel good about it. I'm ready to lay press, man. So I definitely find that I need to have an ultra high level arousal in contest prep. In the off season, I'm like, switch on. Yeah, I'm ready to stab someone, go train leg press. But then I'm like, I'll, I'll tune down, have a conversation. Hey, Dan, how you going? All right, Jack, sweet, Lawrence, all sweet. All right, I'm going to get my next set. Contest prep. I get in the gym and I'm in the training session and I will not exit that training session until I limp out of the gym and then I'm good to go. You know what I mean? Like I just need to be in it. I don't know if it changes for you guys, like your mannerisms, like speak to me. What Am I that psychotic? <laughs> I think it's definitely one of those things where, you know, the irritability is probably part of that as well. Like in the off season, you probably don't mind a little five minute chat, but when you're in the depths of prep, that's five minutes that you're gonna have to stay there longer, which is five minutes until your next meal, which you've been thinking about since your last meal. So a lot of these little compounding things add up. Like I can definitely recall on some sessions with certain friends where looking back, I was like, ah, maybe a little bit of a dick in that one because I was, you know, rushing them through or trying to cut short the intraset or interset conversations and you're just trying to mm. get through it. And it's also probably a reflection of, you know, you're so focused on the goal and you want to get 
you know, 110, 110% out of each session. And you maybe just don't have that little bit of leeway that you might have for a little conversation as you would in your off season. Yeah, I'd often find that I, I had the luxury of too much time. Like I could spend three hours there. And I remember in my first prep, like I had a three and a half hour leg session, but that, that was when I was doing too many sets uh, on leg day. And I think sometimes that definitely acts when, we, when you have limited energy for that session and you're, you're spending three hours in the gym by the end of that session, like I would do like, for example, like some cable crunches for my abs and I would end that set feeling lightheaded. I need to sit down. And that's something that I'll be uh, reinforcing next time is like not allowing my sessions to go to that three hour mark. You know, kind of like you switch, you, you flick like a switch when you're in prep. It's like, like what BK said, like you go in, you're like kind of happy, happy as Larry, like, you know, in a normal week. And then once you're in prep, it's like, all right, well, shit, now everything's changed. You got to flip the switch. Now the training intensity's turned up, like lifts have to be on, like there's no room for error. And you want to try and maximize every single workout. Cause like, you know, you have a couple of shit workouts here and there and you start chatting here and there. And then next thing you know, it might affect next week's session. And then the week after, and there's like a steamroll effect. Sorry, BK. <laughs> no, 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 hundred percent. I think, and also, if we all, uh, we all, to a degree, have an emotional attachment to our training. Not to get off topic, and I would argue that some people say it's a bad thing because if you have a good session, it's great. If you have a bad session, you're you're just upset. I would argue that it's a good thing because it means that it's important to you and it gives you an edge. So it's because you want to have such a good session and you're trying to perform as optimally as possible in the suboptimal environment that is the dieting condition you put a lot of your mental willpower into that time um yeah and like jack said you know about training duration it's pretty easy to procrastinate when you're in condos prep if you have a time availability and rest mm -hmm. is one of those things where some is good more is better and too much is not good so i'd actually do probably something similar to what you guys might do which is i'd actually give myself a time limit I'm like yes a leg session realistically resting long enough but not being excessive two hours i should be out of the gym you know if i'm, if I'm three hours i'm like yeah i'm making i'm mucking around doing something like <laughs> yeah yeah i think yeah. we penciled in two and a half for tomorrow man <laughs> just uh in case there's a, a bit of frivolous warming up or chatting or anything like that bit of an exercise of the v8 motor mouth mate you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah i actually had to set a timer for myself in prep for for rest periods and it would just be that fine line between, like you said, you know, Goldilocks principle, like too little, too much, just just the right amount. I think it was because it's easier to rationalize just sort of sitting there for an extra couple of minutes. So I'd be sitting there on the leg press and I would just like drift off, mentally drift off. And it would be like, you know, six minutes and I'd come back into it. Shit, I'm cold now. <laughs> I'm going to get into this and get into this next set. Whereas uh, that could be a, a strategy that some people employ in their in their current contest prep if they're finding uh, a similar similar trouble that they're they're facing yeah, daniel's drifting off his heads at hungry jacks or something in the middle of contest prep like, get back to the late press man let's go but red rooster backlash over that i uh think i got myself into a bit of hot water i'm gonna have the lawyers at my door yeah. guarantee it was all the families too they're messing you hey red rooster's good what are you on about it's not a front for organized crime shut up <laughs> they know i'm on to them Big chicken. They want to silence me. <laughs> I, I had a question um, quickly, actually, uh, for mainly for BK. Like, how is your sleep in, in contest prep towards the end out of interest? Uh, I will <laughs> not the greatest. I will. I, will, I dare say that, um, like, in general, I, I have no issue sleeping in the, the off season. I'll sleep anywhere. 
you sit me down and I'm, if I'm not stimulating my mind, I'll just have a doze. But uh, in contest preparation, sleep was definitely challenging towards the end. Uh, obviously, product of the dieting condition, high fatigue, but probably also in part associated with my above normal caffeine dose. And um, obviously, at a, a lighter total body mass, I was probably topping out closer towards sort of 8 mg per day, uh, sorry, per kilo per day. And obviously, that I was I was pushing more of that more spread out through my day. And given the long half-life of caffeine, if you're taking it anywhere past sort of 2 p.m., of course, it's going to have some effect on your, your sleep. So towards the end, definitely was finding it pretty challenging. And like most, you know, you have this increased proclivity for morningness where you wake up in the morning and you are mentally alert, ready to seek food. So morning training was my bread and butter in contest preparation just because that's when I felt the, the best. But yeah, sleep, sorry, to answer your question, <laughs> sleep was okay. Uh but not as good as it usually would. A bit more disrupted as a product of the 28 bathroom stops through the night. You guys know mm. the drill. Mm -hmm. And um, just finding it hard to mentally mentally wind down. I'd actually participate in like a, a wind down ritual, so to speak, where I'd listen to a bit of smooth jazz. I'd write down everything that's in my head, my the things that are going around and around in my head. I'd write it down, take it out of my head, put it on paper. Now I could chill. So... But what about you guys? Do you how's your sleep quality at the tail end? Mine's absolutely horrible, which is why I asked the uh, the question. Like it's fantastic in the in the off season. Like I nine hours at least every day, which is amazing. And nice. yeah, towards the tail end of prep, like I'm Tara and I are a couple where like we will just go to bed earlier and earlier because like we'll feel more tired. So we ended up going to bed at like eight eight p.m. at night and waking up at like between four. three and four, and that was horrible. <laughs> So I'm, I'm willing to do anything next time to just experiment and potentially like even go to bed a little later to hopefully mm -hmm. wake up. Cause like if it can delay that first meal and like the trouble is like I get to the gym at eight or nine and it feels like I've already been up for six hours cause I kind of have. And that's what really delays, delays the day and, and makes it tough. Were you doing much in the way of supplementation outside of, you know, sleep hygiene? Mm, yeah. So obviously all that sleep hygiene stuff, um, ashwagandha melatonin i was even is that i've never actually said this on a podcast before but like i was taking melatonin before i went to bed and then i'd wake up at midnight to take a piss and taking melatonin again to try and prolong my uh, sleep duration what, what was your cumulative dose of melatonin uh, i'd have to get back to you on that but i think it was yeah. probably like six milligrams that's not too bad yeah it's, yeah, not, I mean, it's look not a huge amount I, I, I use melatonin. I think it's a fantastic product. As most people know, it is prescription in Australia and it is also incredibly expensive in Australia, like $1.50 per 2MG unit. But uh, thankfully, it is OTC in the US. It's also OTC in Australia if you're over the age of 55, which we do not fit that criterion. But um, I think it's a lovely product for promoting sleep onset. Uh, I've trialed both using the uh, tabs of which are non uh, non-time release obviously that hits the system very very quickly and converse i've used a time release i kind of enjoy both but i definitely feel more of a kind of uh effect and a, more of an acute effect that really lulls me to sleep with the non-time release product and i've done something similar in the past you know dosing like a, a two to five mg and then in the middle of the night where i'm like stumbling through the dark to go to the bathroom without turning the light on um pop another one and go to sleep uh definitely Great a worthy product alike. Yeah, <laughs> until you wake up the next morning and just realize you just missed it. But <laughs> but you got a good night's sleep. So, 
Yeah, I was the exact same. I think a product of my horrible sleep was just like you said, B, I was almost spacing out my caffeine a little bit more, definitely consuming more, more caffeine as well and just additional fluids. So if I was drinking Coke, no sugar or something like that, you know, I'm having 750 mils of that right before you go to sleep. Like that's, it's not really going to be overly productive in terms of then going to the bathroom very frequently. Uh, sugar-free jelly obviously contains a lot of, a lot of water. It's mostly, mostly water. That's what you mix with it. So just, just things like that. And I definitely found benefit to trying to re consciously reduce my fluid intake uh, before, before going to sleep. It definitely decreased how many times I would up throughout the, the night. But I think there's just a deleterious effect associated with prep where you're going to have that, that altered sort of circadian rhythm, that altered sleep, that sleep rhythm. But um, do everything in your power to, to, to improve it if you can. See, that's another uh, argument for not getting too lean too early. Get, if you work to get too lean too early to the point where it's disruptive to your sleep and you are accumulating a sleep deficit, you can get away with that for a time, particularly if you're masking the associated side effects with, say, caffeine consumption. But you get to an eventual point where that chronic uh, sleep deficit is so large that no matter what you do, you're going to feel horrible. So I would argue that, again, you need to be relatively lean very early. But if you are totally, totally, totally ready at, say, 10 weeks out, that cumulative sleep deficit can also crush you from the perspective of you know, recovery and fatigue accumulation. So another fine balancing point to kind of work with. Mm, absolutely. All right, boys, should we move on to the, uh, the next topic here? I wanted to get your, your thoughts, all of you on uh, tempo in relation to hypertrophy training. So, you know, we obviously talk about volume, we talk about intensity, we talk about load. Is there real a benefit to accentuating uh, tempo or paying more attention to tempo? Do we need overly slow eccentrics? Do, do fast eccentrics work in terms of hypertrophy? What, what sort of your your thoughts on on this particular topic? And I actually want to throw it over to Lawrence first in relation to more of sort of a physio mindset. So let's talk about sort of uh, I guess throw throw a curveball in here and say you know if I was injured, uh, would tempo matter in relation? relation to my, my training? Is it something that I could use as a means of, um, of still getting an adequate training stimulus? Yeah, for sure, mate. And um, I guess with injury management, particularly there's certain movements which will bode very well to altering the tempo of the lift. For example, like a common one that I see with people who are very active in the gym is, okay, my knee has been a bit sore with squatting. So, you know, we do a few tests and if we work out, okay, we think they've got like a patella tendinopathy or um, jumper's knee as it's colloquially coined, then a really common way for them to be able to still squat whilst not having as much knee pain is going to be to add in a pause at the bottom. So the reason for that being is that with faster movements where we're using more momentum, we're moving at a higher speed, those sorts of exercises are going to be high tendon load. So jumping, for example, skipping, sprinting, things where our joints are moving very quickly, a lot of the load is going to be attenuated through the tendon. Whereas when we slow things down, when we add a pause, where we take control of our eccentrics a bit more, that's obviously going to be a lot higher muscle load and a lot lower tendon load. So that is an instance where if hypertrophy is the goal, we want to still be able to perform our movement patterns, for example, but we can reduce the load. It's going to be a bit of a novel stimulus, so it may still have a few crossovers to hypertrophy that way. And, you know, if we talk about stuff like hamstring training um, in people post hamstring tear, that's where the eccentrics are also quite 
important. So a lot of that fascicle lengthening comes from heavy, slow resistance in an eccentric portion of the lift. So for things like Nordics, for example, which were made very popular um, in the last kind of two decades or so with hamstring rehab. Um, so I definitely think it is important to consider from a hypertrophy perspective with relation to injury management. And I think that you'd be foolish if you weren't paying it any attention in your training in general, whether or not you're rehabbing an injury or not. But like anything, I also think there is a point where it goes too far. So if you are doing, you know, 10 second eccentrics on every single lift, and then you are then limiting the actual loads you're able to use, then you have to realize that you're shortchanging yourself from a mechanical tension perspective because you're not actually loading those muscles or loading that lift as much as you could. So I think like anything, it depends. And like anything, there's probably a sweet spot in the middle where we don't want to be dive bombing your lifts, but we also don't necessarily want to be moving in slow motion just to get a proper eccentric. Yeah, absolutely. Let's uh let's throw it over to DY. What's your sort of thoughts on on tempo? in terms of hypertrophy? I reckon it matters, but probably not as much as what everyone thinks. Like you see like a lot of influences, like everything's got to be like super controlled, like five second negatives. For example, when we were talking about, when Lawrence was talking about his training, when he was training with Jack, like a couple of years ago, he was doing like these really so slow, like negative reps and like eccentric reps where everything was really controlled. And then Jack was like, like, what are you doing? Like, you know, pick up the pace of the reps a little bit. And like, you know, you can add on so much more load. So it comes to a fine balance. It's like, you know, you don't want to make the reps so quick and just do shit loads of weight, but then you don't want to have it like doing like, you know, seven second eccentric reps and then being doing one plate on the leg press. Like you need to find that like sweet spot in there. But I do believe all reps, especially for like bodybuilding need to be, have some purpose and need to be like controlled because obviously you're chasing the muscle damage. You're not sitting here. You're not trying to just get through as many reps as possible. But another thing with the sweet spot with the reps is like, let's say you might do 20 reps on the leg press. If every rep is five second negative, like you're looking at one very long set. And I don't think you're actually going to make it to the point of muscle failure before you stop before, let's say the, the lactic acid kicks in and your quads are completely on fire. I don't know about you, but I won't be doing a hundred second set on the uh, leg press for five second negatives. I'll, I'll stop way before the uh, muscle gives out. That's for sure that cardiovascular component. <laughs> yeah, exa exactly. It's like, th there's a sweet spot there. Like everything needs to have a purpose. You need to control it. You know, as long as there's that progression there across the weeks and the progression doesn't come from you just shutting the one, like cutting short one second of eccentric of that rep, then, you know, take it. It's going to be increasing that mechanical tension over time and you will get growth from it. Is there much more for me to add? But uh, I, I think I think there's two ways to look at this. I think yeah, from from uh, the research in the area that I've read, it seems to there seems to be not a huge amount of difference in terms of the uh, observed hypertrophy adaptation with varied tempos. Uh, with that said, obviously uh, we always have pretty pretty small sample sizes, and we have limitations in the duration of which we're assessing the, the sample because uh, no one wants to fund us bodybuilders, just a bunch of small, well, small portion of population that want to get insanely jacked. But I think from a practical perspective, uh, it's a good idea to move as explosively as possible in the concentric, move with control in the eccentric within the constraints of, well, control overall, you know, load time deceleration equals tension. Um, the one thing that should remain consistent is the eccentric speed from the first rep to the last rep, 
And personally, I would and I would recommend that you personalize eccentric speed dependent on your skill slash proficiency in the lift. So generally speaking, the more technically challenging the lift is, the slower the eccentric speed will be. So for example, for a lot of my pool-based movements, I'm really emphasizing on scapulothoracic positioning. Therefore, I'm probably going to load the eccentric rather slowly compared to maybe a, uh, a machine chest press, right? So, I mean, I, I personalize that, but that should, but I would say that should remain consistent, consistent. And then obviously, as you move through the set, you will have an involuntary decrease in contraction velocity in the concentric. That's just sort of how it goes. Um, yeah. Okay. Could I ask you quickly, because this is something we've discussed before on the podcast, like relating to sort of Instagram pages like your coach Cassims and stuff like that, when you see the nauseating level of complexity and like, I like some of the stuff he does. I think recently mm. he's put out some really good posts specifically for tricep training. Some really yeah. like simple applicable stuff for your average gym rat who could actually have some benefit from that. But then it is also some of these other exercises where you know you're like you're rowing and then you have mm. to increase your, your thoracic rounding at the same time to fully shorten it. And I just want to get your idea on that. Like, do you think it's a point where it's too much? I think that there's definitely a point where it's too much. I mean, as bodybuilders, we want to choose our movement selections based on what tissue we can recruit. We use movement as our vehicle for taking stress, loading reps to the target tissues. So yeah, it makes sense to move in accordance with the function of the target tissue. But there is definitely a point where you can break it down so much that you're so fo focused on quality to the point where it limits your ability to train intensely. And I would say that's probably too far. And not to speak around the topic, but you know, you mentioned like Coach Kazim and whatnot, right? And there's a couple other sort of, I suppose, the big players in our industry that like to sort of put forward their opinions and in whatever industry you look at, there's always only a handful of sort of figureheads that are the primary kind of the individuals that are at the coalface putting out information. And I think from the consumer's perspective, whether it's a coach or a PT, we should all uh, try and absorb as much information as possible, but we should never lose the capacity to think critically. I've watched our industry go through multiple cycles over the past decade where it's a trend towards one thing, trend towards the other. And it's always the extremes that grab attention. No one thinks, well, not no one. There's a small portion of people that think logically and sit in the middle. You know, we've seen our industry where it's like, at one point it was train intensely, intensely over everything to failure everything. And we saw the uh, RPE come, and RIR come through where, okay, we established that maybe we don't need to train to failure. And maybe to do so as a very advanced athlete all the time is perhaps counterproductive from the perspective of central fatigue. And we saw people gravitate towards, towards like, we should never train a fire. We've seen something similar with training, with movement quality to the point where people put everything under the microscope too much, maybe. But like I said, taking as much info, but, but always think critically because there's only going to be like a small handful of people that are going to create that sort of attention in our industry. So, Yeah. Yeah, all I heard there was you've been through multiple cycles in the last decade. Was that right? <laughs> well, according to all the, the Instagram hate, uh, well, the Instagram hate, said, yeah, sure, for sure. No. <laughs> Lots of creatine cycles. Well, the goal, the goal is to be big enough that you get the accusation, right? You're like, oh, I'm okay, still waiting. Doing all right. Come on. <laughs> I know BK has uh, yes. been called out. I even got called out by the same guy as him. So I don't know what you boys are doing, but me and BK are definitely getting on that upper end of the uh, muscle mass scale. 
you got to get on our level, boys. <laughs> How good. Um, all right. So what, what do you boys think? Do we have time for another question? Or are we sort of uh, sort of hitting that uh, end point of this podcast? I'm good. I'm keen right. to cover one more that we spoke about off air. If you boys are keen to hang around for a bit longer. That's sure. wrong. You want to you throw the question out? Because I can't remember it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, there was a pretty big Instagram post this week, you know, uh, from quite a well-renowned natural pro, Samuel Okunola, very impressive physique. And it got quite a good bit of discourse on the gram and a follow-up response that was really good from Christopher Barakat, who's also a well-respected bodybuilder and coach. And the whole idea was, you know, asking the question, is natural bodybuilding dead? And I believe through listening to Omar and Eric's uh, Iron Culture podcast today as well, I believe a lot of the premise behind that was seeing some of the turnouts with regard to competitor numbers at some of the recent Muscle Mayhem shows, which is one of the most historic natural bodybuilding shows probably in the world, definitely in America, one that's been going on for a long time, despite, you know, multiple changes in federations and stuff like that. But it was just kind of reflecting on the fact that numbers were a bit down. And I'm not too sure if he commented on quality of competitor or anything like that. But I know that the pro division was very undernumbered compared to previous years. So he was kind of just floating that question out there, is natural bodybuilding dead? So I thought that'd be a good one to have a discussion about today. So, you know, Mr. Radford Smith, we haven't heard from you in a bit, so you can kick us off. Wow. So huge topic, I guess. And I think uh, BK is undoubtedly the most qualified to talk about this purely from a uh, historical standpoint, since he's been in the game longer than, than all of us. Uh, but I will give my two cents. So I can't speak for people in the US because I haven't competed over there, but I can certainly understand why it might feel like that natural bodybuilding is dying because it's, it's obviously a, a huge country and they've got a lot of shows on throughout the whole year. And potentially some people are like only a handful of people are rocking up to those shows. And from what I've seen from, I guess, the culture of bodybuilding over in the US is that the NPC and IFBB definitely does dominate. And I've worked with a few younger competitors from the US and they actually tell me that um, they're natural and they compete in an NPC show. And I, I can understand why, because the NPC dominates um, social media. They look up to people who, who are on perform PEDs. And I think that's also something to consider as well, that even, even natural people, uh, people who are at the very beginning of their journey and have a lot more muscle to gain are competing in untested shows against people who are obviously enhanced. And you just don't see that in Australia. Like, sure, there are, there are a handful of people who compete um, in, in IFBB who are untested, but the vast majority of, of naturals compete in natural federations. And you really only see the, the individuals who are at the upper echelon of, of being natural, uh, such as Brandon, who might dip their toe into an IFBB federation or like Cheza, um, who competed in, in IFBB as well. You, you know, when you say uh, bodybuilding, is it dead? I suppose, do, do you mean physique sports as a whole or do you mean the category of bodybuilding? That would determine. I interpreted it as bodybuilding, like the category of Yeah, let's go that bodybuilding. All right. Because I will say this, uh, over the years, obviously with the emergence of fitness, men's physique, classic, it has diluted quite substantially. Just to give you some perspective, the first year that I competed as a teenager, we had 27 athletes on stage. That's three lines 
and about 30 minutes on stage in teenage. I can't remember the last show we had a teenage bodybuilding category anymore. Yeah. No one wants to do bodybuilding. We've got this classic. We've got men's physique. We've got fitness. Now, that's good and great because we have now a category for everybody uh, dependent on your development, where you are in your career, your skeletal structure, et cetera, et cetera. But things have changed. Uh, I think what it does is it contributes. I think that if we look at it overall, we probably have more people participating in physique sports as a whole now, I think. Um, it's just more diluted across more federations and more categories. Because back then, there was two federations in Australia, Australasian Natural Bodybuilding, IMBA, which is now I'm, uh, ICN. And now we've got, well, I won't name them all, but we've got you know five or six in the in circuit. So it was a different bit of a different game there. I think one other thing which is changing the landscape of physique sports as a whole is social media. Reason being is before the emergence of social media, well, uh, we would use bodybuilding shows to validate our awesomeness. Um, whereas now you can get your dopaminergic response from putting your tits and ass on Instagram with a bunch of filters and warping your photos a little bit. All the attention in the world you want at your fingertips. So I think that's changing things. You need to make physique sports somehow very attractive to really attract that audience. I can get all the attention I need from social media. So again, things are, I think it's constantly evolving, but I don't think it's dead. I definitely don't, do not. Um, I just think it's evolving. Less bodybuilding, more on these other categories. Yeah, it's one of those ones where now when you actually look at it, like if you like what Brandon was saying, like is bodybuilding dead or are the actual shows? Because the shows from when I first competed to now have pretty much gone up in numbers. And not only that, that's been over a period of what, two years where there were a lot of shows that were, are they going to go through? Are they not? Now, if you're looking at the Muscle Mayhem show where it's like over in America, like we still realistically can't even fly there till about like, you know, what, like a couple of months ago until we we're actually able to travel interstate. I mean, like well, outside of Australia to go to those shows. So like for the WMBF, like we aren't even able to compete and it's already hard enough for us to get over there as it is, let alone going over there now. Um, but like numbers in general across the entire bodybuilding shows, they're actually going up. And not only that, the federations, like there's more and more, like, you know, BK was talking about only two, having two federations, what, 10 years ago. Now you've got, like, as we discussed last week, you know, there's like five or six big known ones that you can pretty much go into. Now, alongside the IFBB and all that, I don't think we'll ever be as big as them. Um, and not only that, we can't compete as frequently as them. Like, as you boys know, how long does it take for you to recover before you can even think about doing another show where IFBB, you can do a show every single year. You're on the uh, you're on the good protein powder, so you can compete year round pretty much. Where like if you get the BK level conditioning, there's no way you're replicating that every single year. So you're gonna need to take multiple years off. So in that aspect, I guess it it's it's hard because not only have you had COVID and we can't fly into state, so probably the shows are at half the numbers. We're only able to compete every couple of years. So if we did compete a couple of years ago in Australia, well, we're not gonna be able to compete for a while over there, anyways. Just to jump back to Jack's thing. You said, Jack, in the US, a lot of natties are doing NPC. What do you think? Just this is just to, to build on that. What do you think is the most popular category in physique sports right now? Go. Classic. Exactly. Now, in the US, you got a bunch of federations, more than, more than we know as the standard. But the standard pieces would be you got OCB, you got WMBF, you got IMBA. How many of those offer classic? 
IMBA is the only federation that I know of in the US. And I might be wrong. Some of our American listeners pull me up on this. But WMBF, they are too headstrong to do it. They just say that natural bodybuilding is classic. Uh, therefore, we, we won't do it. I'm like, you're taking money, you're taking bread out of your own mouth because you've got so many athletes that, yes, we look semi, you know, we look classic as natural athletes, right? Because we just don't have that GH gut, et cetera. But there are people that are better suited to classic due to their bone structure, barrel chest, shorter torso, yada, 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 who want to present their physique in a classic manner of which will not get judged nicely in a conventional bodybuilding category for WNBF. So if I wanted to do classic and that was my everything, it's not by the way, but if it was, uh, and I lived in the US and the only place to do that was NPC, I'd go NPC as well. So yeah, interesting. Yeah, yeah, I can totally relate to what, what you guys said. I don't really have a whole lot to add. I definitely think COVID has changed the landscape a little bit with respect to competing. Like you said, DUI in terms of into, into um, you know, country, country competing. Um, but I also think we're sort of locked into our own bubble, you know, like for example, in my case, I look at natural bodybuilding in Australia and I'm like, Hey, we are booming. Like things are, things are looking fantastic. And someone else in the U S might go, no, it's dead. Like I went to a show recently and there's like three competitors, like there's no one competing over here. So it's, you know, then you look over in the, in the, in the UK and there's natural body world worldwide. And there's all these pronoun like pronounced natural bodybuilders over there and there's federations and it's just all happening. So it's like, I think it's all respect to where you're, where you're sort of, ha what lens you're looking through to determine whether it's actually, you know, dead, dead or not. What do you think, Lawrence? Yeah, look, I think you guys have summed it up really nicely. And I think maybe just to finish, it'd be, a, just look around, you know, like, I think like DC was alluding to, it's very easy to get caught up in our bubble. But if we see some of the results from like the INBA world that were not so recently with, you know, that guy, Daniel, who's been probably the feature of our group chat over the last couple of weeks, just because of how ridiculous he looked. And we see the competitors from the UK that are getting ready for their seasons. Um, your Keefe West, your Jack Thorburns, people like that. George Osborne, like, it's not dead. Like, and you've got people like that who are also really well known on social media. They're big names in the sport and they're promoting it in such a positive way. And Yes, like social media has changed the game in a sense when it does come to to fitness and, and physique sports and that sort of thing. But I definitely think for as many arguments can be made against it, it's pretty hard not to overwhelm it with positivity, just given how much bigger the sport has been due to social media. You know, we don't have an ESPN channel where we can flick on and watch bodybuilding, but that doesn't matter because we get to follow all of our favorite people on our phones and that's how we get our bodybuilding content so i think overall it is in a really good spot and i just think that the one thing that would really allow us to see you know how big it could be is unfortunately the thing that i never think we will quite get and that is just a little bit more unification across the federations both within countries and um, internationally as well and we're probably not going to get to that stage i think if we all had to if we, any of us were betting men, I think we'd put more money on there being more feds that pop up rather than more feds creating one and unifying. But, you know, that's a part of it. And we just have to keep riding the waves and, and supporting the sport where we can. And that's where I think, you know, even if you're in your off season, like get down to your local shows, like pay your, your 30 bucks to get in, support the people because at the end of the day, like that's how we grow the sport. Unless you've got a, a pro card, then, you know, enjoy your freebie. Me and Jack are still paying our way. 
So let me ask you this, guys. The consensus is, is bodybuilding dead? No. 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 Absolutely not. It's, um, it's just evolving, right? Mm. Yeah. I think it's only going to get bigger. We haven't, there's no way we've peaked. And I think the only time we'll, we'll natural body will, will die off is when there somehow becomes an alternative sort of supplement where it has absolutely zero risks, incredible muscle growth. There's essentially a, a PED that has zero, um, that is cost-effective, zero side effects, et cetera. Or we all live in a virtual world where we can download our muscles and we no need to lift weights to validate our self-worth. And then that is life. I don't know. 10 years away. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about, Jack. Tocosterone is, is rampant, mate. <laughs> <laughs> Boys, well, I think that wraps up another episode of the Bodybuilding Down Under podcast. Thanks again for joining us today. If you love today's episode, remember to give us a subscribe and an awesome review. We will certainly see you in the next episode.